0: deforestation causes soil erosion and degrades that has degraded most of our farmland affecting a lot of a lot of that soil ends up eroded soil end up, ends up in our you know Lake Malawi affecting the biodiversity there and just because of that siltation that happens also reduces the amount of has over the years reduced the amount of water volume in the lake affecting the biodiversity so there is a lot of interconnections with the problem of deforestation because it's connected to so many things that affect Malawian lives.
1: Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of knowledge and belief through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, we visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions and whose experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. As we read the news, Climate change continues to impact our world in a variety of ways. According to the World Bank, the effects of climate change could push an additional 100 million people below the poverty line by the year 2030. In addition, the impact of extreme weather is currently forcing 26 million people into poverty every year. While all countries are impacted by the rise in global temperatures, the developing world feels these impacts most severely. Climate change can increase the effects of population growth and affect the areas of food security, health, and water scarcity, often critical issues in the developing world. Abel Mikulama has been addressing the areas of climate change, conservation, and sustainable development for many years. He was born in Malawi and graduated with a bachelor's degree in natural resources management from Luangwe University of Agriculture and Natural Resources in Malawi. He's also a graduate of the Coastal Science and Policy Program at the University of California in Santa Cruz, where he worked on projects to provide clean cook stoves for households in Malawi in order to prevent further deforestation of natural forests. Currently, he is a program associate at the Center for Effective Global Action at the University of California at Berkeley. Hey, welcome Abel to Intersections. When did you start to become concerned about the effects of climate change?
0: Yeah, so I started getting concerned about climate change because of my experience growing up in rural Malawi on my mom's farm, we were growing maize. And every year as I was growing up, the amount of yield started declining. And that was mainly because of the um, changes that were occurring in the timing of the rain. So rains would normally start in October and end in May, but we started experiencing rains as late as December and January so that and just seeing the changes in when the rain came it came in large amounts at once and and then was followed by you know a prolonged uh dry spell or a drought that just didn't allow for maize production and so I started asking myself why why is this happening and um started reading about it and Decided eventually to go to college and study natural resources management because I wanted to understand how well the changes that were happening around my area and most of the country. And uh, as I read up on on the topic, I realized there was a global, um, you know, problem, and and that the that was something that we you know we could do about it in terms of adaptation. So that that was um, the primary reason why I started getting concerned.
1: Now, so you noticed this in your farm. No one. Brought your attention to this issue. You just you're farming there in rural Malawi, and you just start noticing without ever hearing about the term climate change.
0: Yeah. So it, traditionally, people associated having trees with rain. So areas that had trees would get rain mostly. Um, but there was a huge initiative to try and promote uh, reforestation of the. Forests that had been um, cut down either because of agricultural expansion and also the you know the dominant tobacco industry in Malawi um, that uses up a lot of a lot of trees to to cure cure the uh, the, to- the tobacco and so there was a huge initiative a push to 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 re- uh, replant uh, some of the trees uh, in, in those forests but that didn't. Change anything, and so that's when I started realizing, um, this is a much global problem than than just local. And so, yeah, that's that's how I got interested to study more about it.
1: I see. So, um, there, you mentioned deforestation going on in Malawi for yes. the tobacco crops. Is that they were, tear, you know, tearing down trees to have have more space to grow tobacco.
0: That's right. So tobacco. In Malawi is the main source of foreign exchange which is how as a country we um, we make money is through exports of tobacco um, to foreign buyers mostly from the United States and Brit- Britain and so for a long time Malawi has depended on tobacco so because, because of that and because of agricultural expansion following the increase in population over the years, there has been less and less trees. But recently, a lot of it has also been because of the use of uh, charcoal and firewood for cooking, because about 90% of Malawians are um, rural-based, and so they don't have access to electricity or any other sources of cooking fuel. So because of that, they resort to the resources that are available for them naturally which are trees so you can either you know cut cut down trees and make firewood out of it or uh burn it into chalk or you cut through process of carbonization and use it for cooking so normally rural people will primarily use uh firewood to cook on a three stone open fire um and they will also depend on the same forest to produce charcoal so they can sell to people living in the cities who, who normally will use charcoal for for cooking so all of those problems added together have compounded the the problem of deforestation um at a very large scale that it's it's become a, a huge problem because deforestation as you know causes soil erosion and and and, and um, degrades. That has degraded most of our farmland, affecting a lot of a lot of that soil ends up. That soil ends up ends up in our you know Lake Malawi. Mm-hmm. Uh, affecting the biodiversity there. And just because of that siltation that happens, also reduces the amount of, has over the years reduced the amount of water volume in the lake, affecting the biodiversity. So there's a lot of interconnections with the problem of deforestation because it's connected to so many things that affect Malawian lives.
1: to realize climate was changing. And what did you start to do? How did you start to get involved in addressing climate change in Malawi?
0: So the first thing that I thought I would do is to understand the impact of climate change and the changes that were happening around uh, the country and affecting farmers. I wanted to understand how can we address this at a local scale, mostly focusing on adaptation. So that was a huge influence about of how I chose my major. Uh, So uh, when I went to college, I I majored natural resources management and climate change was a big part of that. And that was also connected to uh, the problem with deforestation because uh, I majored in land and water issues, um, but it was, I went to Lilongwe University of Agriculture and Natural Resources. So it was an agricultural college. So it helped me understand um, all of the these interconnected issues and how they were happening and how we could potentially address it um, at a local scale, but also understanding that even though this is happening at a local level, it, it's, it's a problem that's connected to what's happening um, at a global scale.
1: So was it coming from a rural farming community? Was it difficult to get into the university for you there in Malawi?
0: Very it was very difficult at the time because I at the time Malawi had only three public universities. All of these public universities only accepted up to two thousand students per year and they their capacity was just very limited, so they couldn't accept more students, even though um they were over after what we call primary school um and we, we go to secondary school and sit for an exam the final exam is a national exam which is called the malawi um certificate of of education and in the year that i first sat for that exam there were over 54000 candidates and all of those who had passed um the this exam were over 30000 so those those who potentially would Qualified to apply to college, and um, public universities are more prestigious than private ones. So everybody was applying, but you can imagine applying to um, to college, competing with that much um, that that many students to get into that 2,000, 2000 uh, students capacity into the university. It was very hard. So. I wasn't selected uh, the first time. And so I decided I I want to go back and sit for the exam again to get better grades. So how the grades are measured in Malawi is by points. And what this means is that um, you can score between one to eight points per subject and one being the highest scoring. So if you, you score like 90%, between 90% to 100% in your test, you get a one point. So you have to pass six subjects in order to get a certificate for you to be considered um, successful in the exam. You have to to, uh, collectively have passed six subjects. But the university at the time would only accept people who have an accumulative number of points less than 15. So that meant that you have to be an excellent student. And um, they they were counting a combination of six subjects uh, based on that. And the first time that I wrote my exams in 2009, I got 30 points, which was way above the threshold of what was required to get into um i qualified to to apply to college but i wasn't competitive enough so i I didn't get selected but i applied anyway but i didn't get selected and so i went back to the village and i registered for um, to to write the exam the second time And i went back to school um the first time that i wrote my mom had sent me to boarding school but i didn't do as well so you know uh you know, she didn't have enough money to send me again. So I had to register for at a local school. It was a day schooling school. That means you ha- had to go to the school from my mom's home. Um, and, and so such kind of schools are not um very excellent in terms of what you get in terms of education because they just don't have the right number of teachers. We had, remember, only had four teachers um teaching all four classes of secondary school, which is um which is a lot for for four people. And the teachers were not qualified to teach in secondary schools. They were actually qualified to teach in primary schools, but because of shortage of staff, uh the government allowed them to teach senior classes like that. Um, and we didn't have a lab, we didn't have a library. So it was it was really hard and I had to work. I knew how to work very hard and I worked, I I, I need to work 10 times as hard to compete with someone who went to a good school. Mm. But I had that experience of having written the exam once. So I knew what was required. So my, uh, I put together um, books using the resources that I, you know, I, I got put together some sort of like a personal library and um, worked with a group of friends to focus on like doing group discussions and just discussing uh, different topics and subjects after after school um, to just get get the mastery of what would be asked during the exam. So when the exam came, I I was able to reduce the number of points from thirty to nineteen. But that wasn't even enough because remember the threshold was 15, but it was close. So I was disappointed, but it was I was happy that I had made some progress. So that was um, year two, and then I was selected to go to uh, teachers training college. But th- remember, this is not what I want to do. I want to study natural resources. Um, but with the number of points that I had, the opportunity that I could get was just to go to the College of Education and get a, a training to become a teacher in a primary school. Um, and um, my mom encouraged me to, to go. And so I, I went, but I wasn't satisfied. So while I was there, while I was training to become a teacher, I convinced 10 friends of mine, um, who are my classmates, who were also in this similar situation. Most of them had like 18 points, um, 17 points, some 20. And we just put ourselves together and just started reading. So we would attend classes in college in the morning and just focus on our personal study to sit for that exam again. And we did. And so that third time I got 14 14 points. And so that was below 15. and I was able to um, get into college. But by the time I did... I had finished my um, teacher education training, and um, i I went right after to start to start college and started what I wanted to study.
1: And how long a process was that three years from the time you took your first exams to mm-hmm. go to college to the time you actually you scored well enough to go to um, go into your field.
0: So there was um the first time that I started for my exam was in two thousand and nine. The second time was in two thousand and eleven. The third time was in two thousand and twelve. So, um, because of the the way that the system worked at the time, is that you had to apply to college and they have to review the process. So it that took up a couple of months. So by the time I got into college um, to study what I wanted to study, it was in twenty fourteen. Even though my third exam was in Two thousand and twelve, so there was a waiting period, um, just like applying to college and waiting yeah. for yeah for, for you to get in.
1: So it was about five years from the so you started, and that yeah. was in, in net, nearly natural resources, which you, what you wanted to study. Yes, and, that's right. um, and so when you when you went to natural resources, natural resources college is that what it was called? Natural resources.
0: It's it's called Dilongwe University of Na- Agriculture and Natural Resources.
1: Got it. Yeah. And you started working on developing stoves, mm-hmm. cleaner burning stoves. Is that the work you started there? Yes.
0: Yeah, so talk a little when, bit about that work. What was striking to me was that when I went to Lilongwe, so I'd moved from the village um where I grew up, which is up north, and I'd moved to Lilongwe, which is the capital city, which is where this university is based, what I noticed was that the problem of deforestation was even much worse in the city. Mm-hmm. Than it was back back home, because the city obviously is more populated. And I started thinking, well, gotta do something about this. Um, I saw a lot of people, and I think this is very common if you just type Malawi on the internet, you probably see some guy moving a bunch of firewood on 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 a bicycle, like large amounts of firewood. And that was coming into the city every every day um, on bicycles, on, on, on huge trucks. And it seemed as if there is no alternative um, source of cooking fuel that people could use that wasn't causing harm to the environment. So my idea was to collect some of the waste materials that were around um, and convert it into something useful in form of uh, fuel for, for, for cooking. And so, what was you know, readily available at the time was um, maize stalks, and and because that's one of the most uh, popular crop in Malawi, so it's, you can easily find um, maize stalks after harvest, and people really they, they just burn uh, the stubble after afterwards because they don't have anything to do with it. So I would I put together. I convinced a group of uh, friends were 10 in total um and we went went out to nearby the farms near near the college and started collecting we started collecting this useless um agricultural waste and and try to convert it into something useful that from uh, people could start to use as an alternative source of cooking fuel in their households and so you know through just studying uh, learned about the process of carbonization and how you can turn waste into briquettes. And um, we were able to create an alternative source of uh, cooking fuel in form of briquettes, but um, customize them for the existing stoves that people are already using in Malawi. And um, it's, it's something that worked and we were able to get, we won a, a competition and that were awarded at the time, it was I believe three thousand dollars to to do more research and develop a recipe. Um, so like standardize it, do do some studies about the science behind it, um, and um, and conduct a needs assessment of is this something that people would will be willing to adopt. And so did that between I was in my third year in college at the time. Did it in twenty seventeen, going into twenty eighteen. And that was it. And then I decided this is actually uh, something that I I should explore more. And um, that's what I decided when I go to grad school. This is what I'm going to focus on. But I want to explore it in a business sense. How can I build this out as a business? Because that's the only way that it can scale as a technology. And uh, I applied to uh, grad school in 2018 and got in, got into grad school at UC Santa Cruz in 2019, and uh, that that's what I chose as a topic for my capstone project.
1: I see. Um. So, so back to your work in Malawi, as you came up with this idea of using the stocks from the maize, the agricultural yeah. waste from that, yes. did that catch on? Did you get much pushback on that? What was what was the process like? That like right now is that used? Are is maize stock used a lot more than? Than deforesting the forest in Malawi, or is it about that hasn't made much impact?
0: So at the time, it was something that was totally new. What we did was we uh, went into the villages, talked to households in the, in the rural communities. Um, first of all, we wanted to find out what they did with their agricultural waste. Um, most of it was uh, maize stocks, and we wanted to find out are there any like alternative uses for this? Um, but what we 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 found out was that most of them were just burning it. They didn't have you know any any use for it at all, unless 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 they ones that had um except for the ones that had livestock and they wanted to use it as uh, feed. Um, but but that's very few people who have livestock to to do that so we there was obviously the quantity was there and we knew that we could this is something that we could scale um but people were open to using it but they weren't sure about it it was clear that they needed we needed to prove to them that this is something that works Their one of their concerns was also like if we adopt this is there going to be consistent supply we also needed to solve the problem of seasonality because the harvest period in Malawi is only once a year. And after that, you have to wait for the rains again to um, to plant and then you harvest um, in the summer. But where are we going to get the resources to be able to continue to produce the briquettes throughout the year? Didn't have an answer for that. And I still haven't gotten an answer for that, mm-hmm. um, the, because you know it's just not there. So that's part of the reason why when when I came to um, grad school and started doing in-depth research about about the um, use of brigades and seeing how other researchers have done it in other countries, how it's been implemented um, in other countries, especially around Africa. I I knew I had to find um a, a biomass that was had consistent consistent supply throughout the year, um and, and for Malawi that crop was rice, so decided to 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 pivot from maize stocks to rice husks, um and, and rice husks to to be able to have that consistency. Now the problem is that rice husks are not as uh flammable as ma- maize stalks so just like finding different combinations of like what other sources so i went into like doing more research and a lot of testing um of d- different biomass available in malawi and one of um the one that i found that worked really well was sawdust so if you blend sawdust with Rice house, you, you you create something that is um is is flammable, and the sodas also acts acts as a bl- as a blender um and holds the pellets together, uh can hold the briquette together, and um that's how uh, we solved that problem. But uh, you know now we started thinking about okay where are we how are we going to implement it? So we need we need space. Um, to be able to produce this, uh, we need s- uh, space to be able to store the biomass waste from you know wherever we get it from. Um, so met with uh, Roger Henderson Anderson here in Santa Cruz who loved the idea and supported the construction of that space. Uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing is to use that building, part of that building, to a machine that's going to produce pellets and briquettes to to then sell, sell that to households as an alternative source of cooking fuel to be able to replace the existing traditional methods of cooking.
1: This is in your village. Back in your village, there's a building that will be kind of the pilot project for combining rice hulls with sawdust for tea. So use this to is fuel.
0: so this is in the city. This is in the long way. I got yes. it. Okay. Yeah, Um, But we, yeah, we have other. Uh, pro- pro- we have a different project in the village, uh, also working with Roger uh, Henderson and a few a few uh, other colleagues from, from here in uh, California um which is a, a preschool that we built um and a library a, a com- that has a computer lab to so be able to provide christian education to kids between the ages of 3 to 5 preparing them for primary school and also just in- increase promote the culture of reading and and also train young people with digital skills that they will need for for their future especially with a with, uh, com- computer and, and internet it's something that's not currently accessible in rural Malawi and we are bringing these these things for the first time in my village which which I'm very excited about right I,
1: I just had a question about the the uh, just I want to go back to what's going on in your village with the library and things but yes um, the sawdust that you're using to combine with rice hulls, is that coming from trees that are being burning I would imagine be a challenge to find where to get enough quantity of sawdust where are you where's the what's the plan to find to find that sawdust
0: yeah so we already we we are going to be using um, the existing lumber industry that's already I see. there I and see. they don't have alternative uses for the sawdust so what they do is it's actually a nuisance for them because they they have to they have to find a way to get rid of it and um in in the long way, it's it's a very common problem to see bad actors in the lumber industry dump a lot of sawdust in in rivers because they don't want to pay for the cost. They don't want to pay for the cost of um, getting rid of it properly see, right. um, because they don't just don't have any use for it. So, when uh, part of my research was talking to people who do these kinds of businesses and you know, just establishing connections, asking them questions about uh, accessibility. And so formed um, some connections in terms of where we're going to, we know where we're going to get this uh, sawdust and we're gonna get it for free. But obviously when you start making money and they realize that you're making money, they will ask for. So also, you know, part of the questionnaire when I conducted the research was, what's your, what are you willing to accept? for for your for your soda so like i know the minimum amount of what how much they would accept and so i you know we factor that into our business uh strategy to make sure we can execute it i see yeah yeah
1: um so you mentioned other work going on in your village that you're you're doing as well that, that is that's separate from your climate change work yes what 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 is what are you what what kind of work are you doing um, back in your village where you grew up in Malawi?
0: yeah, so I think b- before I mention that, I also just want to say that w- with the cook stoves so the these are modern modern cook stoves uh that we're going to be promoting and they have an un- you know certain advantages uh that the traditional cook stoves or methods of cooking that people use in Malawi don't have for example the efficiency the energy efficiency on uh the combination of briquettes and pellets plus these modern cookstoves is way much better than uh use, using charcoal or firewood where most of the energy is lost so you end up you know uh, the households end up spending more uh money on on energy than when they use or adopt our um uh, our um and cookstoves um and so what we 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 have done is when i was in my second year in in grad school uh went to ethiopia to do to work for and, and learn uh from a company that's manufacturing modern cookstoves in ethiopia and for the larger part of the east east african Region is one of the biggest um, manufacturer of modern cook stoves. And so that's where I did my research and did the designings of like modern cook stoves that are appropriate for Malawi. Um, And so, because you have to consider like the social cultural issues, again, economics in terms of what kind of food do Malawians eat. So you know what kind of cookstoves can can you design for that, that particular culture, so um, came up with you know Malayan specific designs uh, that take into account those socioeconomic issues, cultural issues, as well um, just as well as the combine into consideration also with the combination of the kind of um, fewer pellets and briquettes that we want to to start producing. Um, the other benefit that I'm also very excited about is the fact that these cookstoves and uh, cooking cooking fuels don't pollu- produce uh, particulates into into the air uh, as you're cooking compared to charcoal or firewood, um, and and this is not talked about a lot because it's not an immediate problem for um a lot of people but what we have seen in terms of studies is that a lot of women and girls um children especially end up having a lot of respiratory issues uh long term because it, in our culture women and children are the ones that do most of kitchen related uh chores like cooking and they inhale a lot of particulates and smog um, and, and that has a long-lasting long impact on um, their res- respiration, uh, respiratory system. Um, and so there's a lot of issues, for example, with pneumonia in children. And pneumonia is actually one of the biggest cause of death among children in, Ma- in Malawi. And part of the reason is just that exposure to a lot of particulate matter coming out of uh, these uh unsafe practices that were traditionally used to to cook, um, particularly with the uh, three stone fire, that's very can be very hazardous mm. to to health. So that's that's one thing that I wanted to point out and uh, excited excited about the fact that that solves that. The other additional benefits include the fact that. With that increased heat efficiency, energy efficiency in the modern cook stoves and um, fuel fuel uh, pellet, pellets and, and and briquettes, is that now women will spend less time um, on cooking activities and they can also focus on more important things like, uh, you know, doing some businesses and and and. Sending their children to school to get an education, which they could not do because, on average, uh, at the moment, a Malawian woman would spend between five to eight hours a day doing mm. cooking-related or cooking-related activities, wow. and this can can include going to the forest to fetch firewood, and with deforestation, these forests are, it's getting much much, much much harder to get. Uh, access to firewood, so they have to walk further distances for, from their homes to be able to access it. And they have to come back, they have to go to their well to draw water. The wells are not in their house. Um, they have to walk uh, on average maybe two kilometers to to get to where they, uh, the borehole well is and, and come back. So you can see how all of that, um just works to their disadvantage mm-hmm. in terms of just uh personal development in terms of what they can contribute to national development so these are some of just like the important benefits of uh what the cook stove project would would assist to solve
1: and the, and the, just to clarify um and to use the rice hull and the sawdust they need one of these newer cookstoves the cookstoves are designed you can't just use that same mixture with the traditional stoves they have that's why you've designed these more efficient cook stoves yeah
0: that's right yeah that's right okay
1: so your village maybe talk a little bit about the the other projects you mentioned going on back in your village that you're doing to try to help develop those that's separate from your your climate change work
0: yeah so this the way that this project came came about was that when i was at Santa cruz i got connected to International Students, Inc., which is a Christian organization that is run by Peggy Pollard at UC Santa Cruz. Um, And what they do is connect international students with Christian families in in, in Santa Cruz. Um, And so I I was, um, I still am very involved with ISI, and that's where I met uh, Roger and Ingar Henderson, and um a few a few months uh, after my arrival um Roger invited me to visit his home in Aptos and I, I went there and he showed me his uh, garage and be, behind his garage was his his library and I, I was so I just blew my mind that one person could have so many books <laughs> in in one place and I, I asked him have you read All of these, he said most of them, (laughs) I was so, just blew my mind because when I was growing up, my dad had a small uh, library and there was was just a couple of shelves. And um, when I was growing up, I'd read, because I love reading, and I'd read a couple of those books and just fell in love with reading. So I kept reading. But then by the time I was 10, I'd run out of books to read. and remember i'm in the village um there's no library so i had to start asking teachers to to lend me books to read and with, within a few years i'd run out of you know teachers to ask because i had also to read most of the books that they had uh that were outside of my curriculum so i w- i just wanted to read more and because that just ex expanded my, my imagination and it took me outside this scope of my village and just I could imagine myself anywhere just between you know it, it, between the pages of the books it was just an experience for me and I, so I've always loved reading and I think uh the potential of what it can do to help cre- create creative minds and you know increase one's imagination to solving problems um I think I had then decided at the moment that I would uh, build a library because I, I wanted kids um, to, to be able to have access because the, the hunger is there. It's just if there are books, people are going to read them. And so I asked Roger, if I build a library, like I was willing to commit to build a very small building, would, would you be able to assist to get books into that library because it's very hard to access books from from Malawi even if you even if you have resources like you'd have to buy them from the United States or like a faraway country so it's it's the logistics of just doing that was I I couldn't have managed to do and and Roger was excited about it was like yes I want to help Um, and then when I went to obviously after a year, I went to Ethiopia to do research, and when I was about to complete my program, we we started we started building, and then that ex- just expanded into oh, what more can we do? We wanted to add um, a computer lab, and we also added um, a preschool. So we just wanted to have everything under one building. So we built uh, with over the past year. Built this. Um, large uh, building that's housing all of these three pro- projects under one roof um and so yes that's, that's that's how it all started so we started collecting books from from santa cruz um and from just friends uh, of rogers dd camels and um, a few other colleagues roger put in some of his own books and um we he also assisted in buying new computers that we wanted to uh, use at the computer lab, and um, we uh, were able to connect with H- H2O, um, an NGO that's working out of Santa Cruz, but working in Malawi uh, as well, and they were able to ship some of those materials for us. And um, yeah, we're you know right now towards the end of the the process of stocking and making sure that we have like the furniture we need, um, and then soon we'll open the school and the computer lab and the library, which which I'm very excited about.
1: Well, wow. so so the building is built, and you're planning on opening next year.
0: We're planning on opening next year. Yes, wonderful.
1: And then yeah. you'll have preschool teachers, and is this funded by just people who are independent donors or churches or organizations to? To fund this as an ongoing work in your village.
0: So for now, um, the funding that we have put in have have been have come either from uh, Roger um, and a few colleagues that he introduced the uh, projects to, and and some of it has come from from me in terms of like just my my work. And um, we in what we want to do is to continue to develop it to a point where it's self-sustaining. Um, And how we're going to do that is we are incorporating a business aspect to uh, the project. So allow the community, for example, to uh, use, uh, you know, computers, um, the internet, we plan to provide the internet. um, And and so they'll be able to pay for uh, those services like, you know, uh, printing, photocopying, and also be able to provide that kind of services to schools that. Around the area uh, that currently have to go to the city, which is like five hours away. So they're able to now be able to access those services locally. And we can make some money from that to make this project self sustainable. But at this moment, we're not there yet um, because we're still at the point where we have to uh, put in some investments in terms of electricity. Uh, so we are at the at the moment, in the process of installing, uh, about six solar panels and, and uh, three batteries, um, lithium batteries for, uh for the electrical system for the building because my village doesn't have electricity, so that will be what we will be using for, for all the electricals and lighting, so that we can, um, allow children to to. Um, start learning and also young people to just have access to uh, the library beyond the daylight so they can go into the night and study, uh, which was not possible before.
1: So you work at the um, Center for Effective Global Action at UC Berkeley. Um, Correct. Could you talk about the work of the center? First of all, what, what the center is doing and and a little bit also about the work that you're doing um, in, uh climate change, whether in, in your country or other, other parts of the developing world?
0: Yes. So um, I work for the Center for Effective Global Action, which is a department at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, my role there is as a program associate. Uh, the center focuses on generating innovative research that decision makers can use to reduce global poverty. And there's different portfolios within the center, uh, different initiatives that focus on addressing this mission. So I am on the agriculture and global networks uh, portfolios. And the agriculture portfolio works in collaboration with MIT to provide funding for researchers who are part of the affiliate network for the center. And these researchers can be from different universities across the West Coast. So mostly, you know, the University of California system, um, British Columbia, and other West Coast universities that are in our network um, that are able to apply for funding to do Impact evaluation research in agriculture, um, focusing on technology adoption in agriculture and digital innovations and services. So, I I was brought in to support that uh, program, and um, what I do is to support uh, running requests for proposals and facilitating the competition processes for researchers who apply and to the point where they are selected for uh, for the funding. And then also preparing uh, different reports, policy impacts, policy briefs, and pub- publishing those on, on on our website so people can see the impact that the research is doing on the global Networks portfolio, I support visiting scholars who are mostly PhD holders or students from low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa to come to Berkeley for a semester to audit classes and then get training in impact evaluation research methods so that they can go back and implement those in their home institutions. Mostly the institutions can be think tanks and Universities in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, so that is what I uh, I do at uh, the center in uh, Natchiel.
1: Could you talk at all generally about what how you mentioned these research projects? These, Agricultural research projects going on, um, and then things, projects, research back in these low and middle income c- countries in sub-Saharan Africa. What kinds of research are are they doing? Are they researching climate change issues, climate, you know, how the climate is changing or agricultural issues or pollution? What sorts of research is that involve?
0: Yeah, so um, let me see what I can get into here. Um, I think... The, the focus is for research specifically in agriculture that deals with adoption or how farmers in Sub-Saharan African countries or South Asian countries um, adopt new technologies for farming. So this cannot, can mean um, how farmers can adopt a new variety of seeds that will improve their yield. That is more, uh, for example, resistant to drought. If there's a new technology in 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 seeds, how can that? How can we get that to farmers? What methods work? And to be able to understand that, um, the center disperses funding to researchers to do impact evaluation research, which basically means that um, they have to do. What we call randomized controlled trials, um, you know, to large samples of uh, uh, farmers or households to understand what works and what doesn't work. So, it, just in in brief, without getting into too much detail, I think that's what I can say to describe um, the nature of the kind of research that um, the agriculture uh, team focuses on.
1: Great, thanks. Um... You had mentioned earlier about your um, working with a Christian organization at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Yes. Um, so, uh, talk a little about your your own belief system as a Christian. Did you grow up um, as a Christian in Malawi, or is that something that came later in life?
0: I was born in a Christian family. My my father and mom, uh, Presbyterians, uh, in Malawi there center there's a church called the Cent- central african presbyterian um so which is what i was um i was i was i was born in that church and i was baptized in that church um and when i when i was in um college i joined a different church which is different from my mom's church but i've always been a christian um so my faith is something that's always been part of me and something that I I, I live by. Um, I believe that to be able to be what I am today is is a testament of what what the word of God can can do, and I I I I take that very seriously. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things that I I did. identified and connected with ISI Santa Cruz before I even came to uh, Santa Cruz because I I wanted to have a community of Christians and and be able to connect and gather and and fellowship um, because that's um, something that's a priority to me, my spiritual growth. Um, It's something that's important. So even though ISI doesn't operate as a church, but we do. We did have, when I was uh, at Santa Claus, we did have uh, weekly Bible studies. So we would go to McKenna Library to study the Bible um, for, for an hour a week, um, consistently for the entire time that I was on campus. So it was very helpful to, to, to do that because it just helped uh, to keep me grounded in the faith uh, in spite of just, like, all the changes that were happening because of the move, obviously, and then also adjusting to a different culture. Um, it's it's almost felt at first as if I was on a different planet because of just the, how huge culture shock was, right? Mm. And the thing that was consistent was the Word of God. Mm. So that really kept me grounded um, and, and, and focused on what's important.
1: How did your faith help you navigate that culture shock as you came over from Malawi to America and navigating all the challenges of a new culture. How did how did you draw on your faith during that time?
0: I think what was useful was um, finding that despite the fact that there were a lot of changes that I needed to adjust uh, just to uh, in terms of just what's acceptable in this culture, what can you... Um, what's considered polite um for example in you know in the states is very different from uh what's what's polite or not polite in, in in Malawi and so i'd obviously you know read up on a lot of cultural issues before i i, I came here but theory is different from from practice and like, there's way more things that I, I didn't know even from my reading um about american culture that i I was just, I was just in shock really to, to, to see. Um,
1: what are some of those things? How that you were in shock about
0: just simple. Um, first of all, I thought, I thought that, you know, everyone in America was too loud. Um, I thought that they, you know, Americans are, that they don't want you to be in their space. Like they're very sensitive about their personal space. Um, we, which is a very strange concept for me because um, you know we shake hands all the time, we we hug all the time, and you you don't have to be you know that far apart from people. Um, but it, you you know here it was okay, don't get in my face. <laughs> uh, so it's like okay. Um, in in Malawi, when someone says how are you when they greet you in the morning, right? Like if you meet someone for the first time or you're seeing them for the first time in the day when they say, how are you? They really are interested in knowing how you are. They want to know how you, you are in your body, how you're feeling, how your, your mom is, how your children are back home. If you have kids, um, how is your family in general Here, so so what happens is that in that conversation when someone asks you even if you're in a hurry you stop and you it's like a conversation you can go for 5 minutes because they really are interested here well it's, I guess they are interested but they just not they're just not going just not, they're not gonna not going to stop and have a conversation right. yeah. generally friendly which is, is something I you know I always appreciate about you know California especially is you meet strangers and they smile at you you, you know even if you're you you do not know them they smile at you they'll nod at you just to recognize your presence which is which is great uh but it's just different from from how we 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 do so in in my local language how we greet each other is uh salbonani salbonani literally means I see you so I see you and you respond salbonan. that means I see you too and it doesn't end there. You also ask how do the people back home are? Because uh, we in Africa, generally, with, there's this principle of Ubuntu, which means that I am because we are. There's, there's no concept of individuality. There is concept of a, us as a community. Um, there's a phrase that's in uh, Zulu language in, in from South Africa, it's called Ubuntu. Gabantu Gabantu, meaning I am because we are and we are because I am so people always approach things uh from the perspective of community not individual so that's why they will ask you about your home not just you um and that was one of the you know biggest shocks here because there is also people are focused on themselves too much and what's what's best for them I, uh which is not necessarily a bad thing it's just different. <laughs> It's just different.
1: How did your faith help you navigate those differences when you first came here?
0: First of all, just realizing that, first of all, like the changes were really overwhelming. Not to, I think it could have been different if I, you know, I'd probably grown up in the city. Could have been different, but I I, I didn't grow up in the city. Um, so it was um, really hard. It was overwhelming, but just realizing that Everything can change, but the word of God doesn't change. That's the only thing that can stay relevant, uh, consistently. A, it it just uh, gave me the reassurance that everything's going to be okay, mm-hmm. so long as I was grounded because that, that's the foundation of my faith and that's who I am, a Christian. That's my identity. First is I'm a Christian. I'm not, a, I'm not a student. You know, I'm a, I'm a living student in America. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian first so that reassurance gave me i guess you, you might say the patience to learn things so that i didn't stay in that overwhelmed state of mind um so that that allowed me to just better understand how things work here um and and trust me i'm still learning and i've learned a lot from friends over the past um past years but it's um the word of god is is very relevant. And now also just having that community, right, of fellow Christians, you just literally learn a lot from them too. Yeah. So I have been known to ask a lot of questions about <laughs> about a lot of things about um the the way of life here. Um, but also just by observing how others do things. Um, but that all of that couldn't have happened if I wasn't grounded in, in, in God's word or mm-hmm. stay connected in, in, in God's word through. ISI and also through GCC, which is where I went on Sunday uh, when I was in Santa Cruz.
1: Thank you, Abel, for being on this episode of Intersections. Abel Mikulama is currently a program associate at the Center for Effective Global Action at the University of California Berkeley. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on Intersections.